You're listening to Washington Post Live's weekly conversation series with cultural pioneers and changemakers on race in America. Hello, I'm Jerry Brewer, a sports columnist here at The Post. And thanks for joining us on Washington Post Live for another in our Race in America series. Joining me today to talk about his HBO documentary, Say Hey Willie Mays, is filmmaker Nelson George. Nelson, welcome to Washington Post Live. Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Oh man, I cannot wait to talk about this. You you got me in trouble. I was uh, I had some some things that my wife wanted me to do, and uh, <laughs> I had to delay that for almost two hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, hopefully uh, she she forgave you. Yeah, the the, the honeydew got done a little bit later, but uh, th- this was just uh, wonderful. I couldn't help thinking about this film from the fact that we lost Hank Aaron and Bill Russell uh, over the past year. And I was just thinking, what, what wonderful timing that we were able to do this while we still have Willie Mays. Um, why was the moment right for you to do this film? Well, I mean, it, it, we've been trying to get this done. The producers have been trying to get this done at least since 2015. As you know, Willie is historically not very open to the press. Um, I think we're probably the first um, film crew to be in his house uh, in in years. Um, so uh, it was a long process. I think that the timing was just a matter of, you know, it would have happened a lot sooner if it wasn't for COVID, let's put it that way. That definitely put a, a, a damper and made us have to wait. But I, I think that um, your point about Hank and your point about Bill Russell is very uh, on point. I mean, Willie is a product of a world where the crossover started happening in athletics. While Jackie Robinson was the first black player in the major leagues, it was Willie and then people like Ernie Banks and Hank Aaron, uh, Lou Brock, Bob Gibson, etc., Elston Howard, who were the next, that wave of black talent that came in uh, and particularly transformed the National League into a league of a more exciting, more aggressive brand of, bas- of baseball. But was Willie as probably the most exemplar of that aesthetic. Willie excelled at what they call the five tools in baseball. Hit, hit was power, run, field throw. And he did all of those at a high level. But not only, it's not just the numbers, he had 660 home runs, which is amazing. But he was also a joyous player to watch. Uh, he introduced a basket catch, which, which no one else did before or since, in which he kept the ball at your waist violating every rule of baseball. He was known for his hat flying off when he ran uh, around the bases. Um, he just was a, a, a charismatic character. Um, in the 1960s, the San Francisco Giants were the number one drawer in Major League Baseball. Now, they only won one, they only went to the World Series in 62, but Willie, along with the, the great teammates, Juan Marichal, Cepeda, Willie McCovey, were probably the most entertaining team of the era. So how did you get Willie to open up? You talked about how he was notorious about not wanting to do interviews and he was filling you out. I mean, you, you even saw a little bit of that in the documentary. How'd you get him to open up? Well, it's funny. Uh, the, so we get there. We, we did two days back to back. The first time we met was Willie. Um, and the first hour or so, he's feeling me out. He's not giving me great answers. Now, you, you got to remember that Willie, his eyes are very bad and his hearing's very bad. But at some point um, during the conversation, I realized that um, I'm talking to him like an icon. I need to talk to him like 
like my uncle or like, you know, any older black man from the South. And um, I started sort of picking at him a little bit. And he responded to that because he's a, he's, he's one of the greatest jocks of all time. You know, he's a lot. He loves the clubhouse. He loves the banter. And if you stick around to see the very end of the film and the closing credits, there's all this kind of back and forth with me and Willie. Um, and he loved it. And I think that really opened him up and he felt more comfortable. Um, Willie Mays has the biggest hands I've ever seen on any human being. There are, they're immense. Okay. So one of Willie's favorite things is for you to shake his hand. Now, even at, not, at that point, that was 89, even at 89, 90, 91, he'll crush your hand. And so, he, so you see a little bit of me, uh, like sparring with him and trying to hang in there with him. Um, you know, it's funny you said that about that, that we took that era of black athletes. There was a comment that was made, I think, on ESPN um, last year about athletes from the 60s. They were part-time plumbers. They were firemen. They weren't athletes like, the, you know, we are now. Well, I'll tell you what. One of the things we really emphasized in the film was Willie's body. His hands, we, we really focused on these immense hands. We also show him in, in 19, it must be 1949 or 50, this picture, a within a locker room as a young man. And the brother has an eight pack. And this is the era way before all the training and all the kind of weightlifting we do now. He was, a, he was an athletic specimen uh, who could compete on, on the athletic level with anybody playing today. So I wanted to establish that physicality in the film. And then also his baseball intellect. From Barry Bonds to uh, all of the players who played with him, his understanding of the game, looking at pitchers, looking at alignment of, of, of how, how, how we should play certain players. Um, Willie, while he was the Giants, was the on-field defensive captain in the era when they weren't coaches like they have now. They have, they have computer printouts to tell you where to play guys. Willie would do it from center field, and he would use his glove, and he would tell guys, go left, go right, go left, go right. And if they didn't, they didn't play the next day. So uh, even though he was never a formal manager, Willie ran the field defensively uh, for his entire tenure in San Francisco. Just move a little to the left or the right, stay out of my way, and I'll go get it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we have a clip of uh, Willie reflecting on his career. Let's take a look. It's difficult right now to even try to explain to you how much I love baseball. I think we had what you call uh, a love affair. There goes Willie Mays, the greatest player to ever play this game. Nelson, so this is a simple question, but a big question. What does baseball mean to Willie Mays? It's everything. I mean, it, it took him from, you got, from Birmingham, Alabama in the 1940s. I mean, he went to a school, a high school that was one of those technical high schools where they, you know, they didn't really emphasize academics, right? So um, I think his major was, was learning how to be, a, uh, to be a cleaner, to work in the cleaners. I mean, that's the kind of training he was getting. So he knew he needed to figure out a way to get out of that. Um, his father, uh, Cat Mays, was a hardworking dude. He was a steel worker. He also did Pullman Porter work sometimes on the weekends. And he was a minor league baseball player. And back in that era, you know, all of the, all the steel mills and teams had, had baseball teams, athletic teams for the, for the workers. And he was apparently a very good player. At around four or five years old, he saw something in his son and um, really steered him toward sports. And it's interesting because Willie 
could have pursued a basketball career and tried to be a trotter. He was a star player on his uh, high school basketball team. Apparently, he was a quarterback on his high school football team. But he knew back in that era, there was no athletic scholarships to major colleges. If you didn't play for the Trotters in terms of basketball, there wasn't much money to be made. So baseball was a, sp- a sport where he could play, as he said to himself, and play a long time. And Willie played from 19 uh, in the majors from 51 to 73, 22 years. Um, played into his 40s, which, back, again, back then, if you were an outfielder, I mean, it was very, very rare for you to get that far in the game. So um, he chose baseball because he knew it was something he could play for a long time. And then he learned the nuances of it. He was trained by starting in the Negro Leagues, really, with a guy named Piper Davis, who managed the Birmingham Black Barons. Uh, Willie had several mentors who really looked after him. Or Willie likes to say, take care of. It's a, it's a big phrase for Willie, the idea of people taking care of him when he was young and him taking care of people later. And part of his love for baseball is that com- camaraderie and that, com- that sense of community a sense of um, we're all in this together. And you know, to this day, until COVID hit, um, he would go you know, on a weekly basis to the Giants club, uh, when the Giants were home in San Francisco, they have a room where they set up Willie at a desk. The young Giant players came in, so he's part of the tradition of the Giants. And players from other teams came in. You know, Willie Mays is in the house, I'm gonna meet him. So the game, the nuances and the camaraderie are what made him love the game. So Willie got to live in three very different areas, you know, obviously in Birmingham, being from Alabama with the Black Barons, then going to the New York Giants who become the San Francisco Giants, and then obviously at the very end coming back to New York to play for the Mets, uh, in addition to just traveling the country. Um, what do you think uh, – Willie's experiences playing in these different cities across the country. How do you think that that kind of um, uh, informed his 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 blackness? Um, what do you think it meant to him as a black man being in in these very very different parts of the country? What did he learn? Well, you know, Willie's not someone who's going to uh, tell you about. He's not going to bring up racism. He's not going to bring up things that bad things that happened to him. He's a guy who's going to always talk about. You bring up something in, you know, an historical incident that you know happened to him. He's going to go, well, yes, but these people helped me and these people helped me. So he, he tends to look on the positive side. So if you ask him about growing up in Birmingham, he's not going to tell you about the limitations. He's going to tell you about the community and the people that he was with who, he, who, who helped him and bonded with him. He's not going to dwell on the stuff that we usually dwell on. Coming to New York was a profound because you, you go from Birmingham, Alabama, where you're living in an all-black community, predominantly, but one that's kind of constricted by where you can go and what you can do. He loved being in Harlem. Um, one of the, my favorite parts of the film is the description of his life in Harlem. Uh, initially, he lived um, only two blocks away from the polo grounds where they played uh, with a black family. Famously, these kids would come out in the neighborhood and play stickball with them. He would play stickball with them. Um, local kids. He was very much connected to the young people and kids. He always was. Uh, 7th Avenue back in the 50s uh, was a fantastic sort of boulevard of, of, of fun. There was um, the great Sugar Ray had a spot on 7th Avenue. There was a place called the um, Small's Paradise that uh, Will Chamberlain ended up buying at some point. And there was the, the, red, the 
Red Rooster, which was a spot that became Willie's Hangout. Um, a guy named George Woods owned it, and they, they reserved a table in the back for Willie. So back then, you mostly played day games. So he would come after a game, have a meal, hang out, meet, you know, folks. Um, so that, that Harlem world was really, really supportive of him. And then, you know, he met his first wife in Harlem. So that was the, the maturing experience of being in a different kind of black community, one with a lot more possibility, a lot more glamour, a lot more money. Um, and then San Francisco was, was a change because it wasn't, unlike Birmingham and, and, and also like New York and Harlem, it didn't have as big a black community, especially in the 50s. And it certainly didn't have that level of, of, of the many different variety of places you could go, restaurants and life. So uh, he became a little bit more um, reclusive, maybe one word, but, or definitely more protective. Um, he, when he divorced his uh, first wife in 62, he got a really beautiful kind of bachelor penthouse house that had like a, his son described it as the bat cave because he had a, he had the, uh, a ladder, I mean, excuse me, a spiral staircase built in the middle. So he could go really literally from his bedroom to his living room, down to his car and drive to the ballpark. Um, and so he spent a lot of time, instead of him being out as he was in New York in the fifties, uh, he was more likely to, to invite Hank Aaron, to invite Bob Gibson, to invite Joe Morgan over to his house for dinner after game and, 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 and Bond play pool. He's a big pool player. Um, so, uh, each, each city, Birmingham, New York, Harlem, San Francisco was a slightly different experience for him. You had such a, a great and so often it's subtle uh, appreciation of the way that Willie played. And I think you presented him uh, not just as an athlete, but, but as an artist in, in a certain right. way. So just yeah. uh, tell me what set him apart as a player from the other greats of his time. Well, there's, you know, there's a skill level. I mean, uh, I think the way to describe Willie and think about him is in the early 60s, particularly when he, you know, those peak years from when he got to San Francisco in 58, you know, through 66, 67, um, he's equivalent figure to like a Sammy Davis Jr. or Cindy Poitier. He's uh, a star, not just a player, but he's a star whose people like, they're attracted to. Um, and he had a, 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 a kind of light around him. So when he played the game, he's someone that people stop to watch. And not just watch at bat, which happens with sluggers. You watched him in the field because he was flamboyant in a way that was, um, I mean, I go back to the basket catch. I mean, we talk about black excellence and we talk about black innovation. And almost every sport that, that black people move in into in significant numbers, they bring an attitude, they bring a, a spirit, they bring a style that wasn't there before. I like to call it BAA, the Black Athletic Aesthetic, which is kind of like I'm here, but I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna put a little something on the game. And the basket catch was such a signature thing. It's it's it seems like a simple thing. The ball's coming in the air and you catch it like this at your waist. But uh, a moving baseball hit by by powerful men at big speeds is not nothing to joke with. And most people who try to basket catch either miss the ball completely or get hit side the head. You know, so he had uh, an ability to, to, to bring that to the game. The other thing we, we tried to show in the film that speaks to his celebrity was that um, Willie 
was uh, was on the Ed Sullivan Show regularly, which was the number one show in America every Sunday night. He was on sitcoms like Bewitched, like the Donna Reed Show. So he was accepted and celebrated uh, in by white fans and white media in a way that was quite unique, and that that sort of sets up and uh, sort of predates the. Uh, the crossover athlete world of the Jordans and the, and the Magic Johnsons later, you know, he was that guy. And I would like to say that before Ali became the, the dominant figure in terms of black sports and American sports, it was Willie. Baseball was the biggest sport in America well into the 60s. And Willie was the most charismatic uh, player in the game at that time. Uh, and I think one other thing for people to understand, because there have been so many home run records broken in the last few decades, when Willie uh, broke Mel Ott's National League home run record, I think it was 514, the only person who hit more home runs than Willie at that point in time, and this is mid-60s, was Babe Ruth. So we've had the records a lot, but at that time, it was unprecedented, and that 714 number loomed ahead of him as the only, you know, the, the, the next goal. But again, Willie wasn't just a, a home run hitter. He was a base dealer, and he was a captain. And he was a charismatic guy who could, who was actually a pretty good actor when you watch these sitcoms. So the, uh, I think in terms of the entire package, Willie's a dominant player because of not just how he played, per se, his numbers, but the style, the energy, the charisma. Uh, Jackie Robinson, who Willie Mays modeled himself after, you know, criticized him for, for not doing enough during the, the civil rights movement. Um, how did Willie contribute to the civil rights movement? And how did you kind of deal with, with, with handling all of the nuances uh, of that situation and understanding it? Well, I think, uh, number one, Willie, I think one of the things to understand about Jackie and Willie, Willie, when Jackie came to the majors, he's already been in the, Air, in the Army. He's been to UCLA. He's a, he's a very morally sophisticated guy. One reason that DeBrand Tricky sought him out. Willie was 20 years old when he got to New York, just, you know, just a year or two out of high school in Alabama. So he never, uh, he never felt totally comfortable as a spokesperson. He never felt, he always felt like Jackie or you know, Dr. King, whoever else were more qualified to lead that discussion. So part of it was, I think, a little bit of self-consciousness. Uh, I think that what we look at, Willie, we look at two levels. We look at his ability to penetrate white America. And I mean that as a celebrity. I mean that as a TV appearances. I mean that as a figure of, uh, to be emulated by a generation of, of white fans who, for whom Jackie was the pioneer breakthrough, but Willie was the, the one who became the star at that next level, right? And then two is Willie as a mentor. One of the main threads of the documentary for me uh, is this idea of mentorship. And it starts with Willie's father, with Willie Piper Davis of the Birmingham Black Barons. And then later, uh, you know, Louis DeRocher taking him in and mentoring him in the early days in New York. And then Willie becoming a mentor himself to the wave of Latino players who came in. The Giants were one of the teams who really embraced Latin ball players. Brought in uh, in big numbers, uh, Clement, excuse me, Juan Marshall, Alana Cepeda, Tito Fuentes, and more. And then Willie becoming a mentor for Bobby Bonds, who, who was a fantastic player, 
the father of Barry Bonds. So that thread is a big part of it. Uh, and ultimately, Willie, as a, a person who did behind the scenes stuff, Willie um, helping, you know, we have Willie Brown, the, the former mayor of San Francisco, also at one point one of the most powerful people in the California state legislature, and how he helped him raise money and did that for many, many other people. So Willie wasn't a, uh, an outside agitator guy. He was an inside person. Um, I think something else to be pointed out, because we, we deal with uh, Jackie's criticism and we deal with Willie's reply and, and the point of view of Barry Bonds and, and other people. I really wanted to make sure that we had that dialogue from a number of, point of view, points of view. What is black activism and what are, the, what are the ways in which it can manifest? And certainly, uh, Harry, Professor Harry Evans, excuse me, Professor, Professor Harry Edwards, who is a fantastic uh, thinker and activist in black activism, criticizes Willie along with Jackie. At the same time, you have Willie Brown and other people, who, and Todd Boyd uh, from USC, talking about Willie and his context and how he viewed the world. So I think what I tried to do was to definitely address the criticism, because I think that's an important part of the, the historical record of Willie, but also to really honor Willie's point of view. And I think, uh, I think one of the things to think about now is in this era of you know, Black, Black Lives Matter and activism, there are people who are really upfront, and there are other people who are not upfront, but who doesn't mean they're not doing things to help the community. So I do think that you need, um, what I would say, you need the tree shakers and you need the jelly makers. When that, when that tree falls from the trees, when that fruit falls on the tree, someone has to be the one who, who turns it into something edible. Uh, and, those are, and that's kind of, I think, how Willie was. Willie was a person who took the fruit and shared it with others. We have a, a question from, an audience question from Gerard from Texas who asks, Willie Mays often played himself in the chronic exhaustion, especially at the end of regular seasons and pennant races. Can you please comment on his regular season hospitalizations for treatment for exhaustion? Yeah, you know, so uh, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but from like 1958 to like the 60s, Willie probably missed, um, and they played like, at that day, they played, I think, 154, 155 games, not the 162 most of that time. Um, he missed only like 20, there's like a 10 year span where he missed maybe only 21 games. Um, and of those 21 games, I think the Giants only won seven. So um, he believed, and this is, this is a, the way it was in that era. You played every day. Uh, you didn't, you didn't, there were no, uh, there were very few off days for play. They played all day games, so they played in the sun. Um, and he just believed that the team had the best chance of winning when he was there. So he played himself into exhaustion, I think, at least three times in his career. And he collapsed straight out and was put in a hospital. Um, it's both a reflection of his dedication to the game, right, and to the Giants, but also a, a reflection of the values of the time. Um, it wasn't, you know, we're living in an era where athletes are, 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 and everyone, you know, we have mental health breaks and we have days off. Uh, you know, pitchers don't pitch nine innings anymore. This is not that era. This is the era where you were a star. You were expected to be on the field every day, no matter what your condition, and try and make it work. Uh, and so Willie was a product of that. And he, he believed that that was the only way to be a leader. And then you lead by being on the field. If you have a headache, if you have a sore back, if you have a sore knee, 
he played through all of that and, and eventually his body gave out of, you know several times so yeah it was a it's a reflection of both his mentality but also of the values of the era Nelson uh Barry Bonds Willie's godson brings a whole nother level of emotion and humanity to the project just what was the process like when did you when during the making of this did you interview Barry Bonds were you expecting him to elevate it as much as he did? So we uh, we were shooting on the at the birthday party for Willie 90th birthday. You see it in the in the film. And I met you know I met uh, Barry that day, and he said he was in, obviously interested in supporting uh, Doc that his father, that his godfather was in. It took a while for him to really uh, sit down because I feel like you know it, we can go. That's a whole other <laughs> discussion. But ultimately. Barry's relationship with the press was very bad. He's, you know, he's been accused of, of using steroids and, and so things, and he's always been in denial about that. So it's been a fight, you know, and, and so he doesn't trust the media. I think he probably had people, um, um, a couple of got year interviews where people said they were going to interview him about it and then tried to get him on. So it took a while to gain his trust. But when we sat down, uh, as you'll see in the doc and as you've seen, um, he was as vulnerable and um, open, as loving uh, as I think he's ever been on camera. Talking about Willie really brought out uh, some nuance and some and some and some deep love that yet people hadn't seen. Um, and I was uh, so pleasantly surprised. I, I I knew that talking about Willie would would be easy, but I didn't know it would be so emotional. Um, and the other thing I could just add is that, you know, so we sat with, with Barry maybe for, we did about the first hour and we got a lot of the things I needed for the doc. Um, but then he went on for another half hour or so just talking about baseball and his understanding of the game, his understanding of hitting. Uh, and I'm talking about scientific level, talking about velocity versus bat speed. And I mean, it, <laughs> The, 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 whatever people can say, he didn't hit those baseballs by accident. He he was mentored, as he talks about in the film, by two excellent. He was mentored by Willie Mays, his godfather, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, player of all time, and his father Bobby, who people don't forget, Bobby was a 300 home run, 300 stolen base guy, um, an excellent player, an All Star caliber player at several teams. So he had these two different mentor figures driving him, and he took in those lessons and intellectualize those into building a, a, a historic career. One last question for you real quick, Nelson. I, I hear you. Barry Bonds was able to share with you uh, Willie Mays' reaction to the film, that he's watched it over and over. Uh, yeah. How much does that mean to you? Well, like, I think we, when you opened, you talked about the loss of uh, Hank and uh, Bill Russell. And the fact is that, you know, it's not that when you make something that you're trying to sum up or ce or celebrate someone's life. It's great when they can see it. And I think it's great. Uh, Willie is the oldest living baseball Hall of Famer. And um, he's had a hell of a life. So I think when he watches the film, I'm sure what the film is doing is triggering his memories. So him seeing the catch in 54, him seeing him with Orlando Cepeda or um, hanging out or the year he played with, two years he played with the Mets, these are bringing back memories that are deep. And he, so he's seeing things that we're not, I'm sure he's seeing the film, but he's also seeing deeper into the film. 
and, I, and that makes me very happy. Oh, man, Nelson, unfortunately, we're out of time. I got more honeydews to do, so uh, I'm going to leave it there. Nelson George, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's Race in America, an Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.